Hey Collective Church, uh, Pastor Ryan here coming to you live from my dining room table in what has uh, over the past hour or so come to be something of a mix between a recording booth and a pillow fort as I'm trying to block out as much of the external noise as I can. So we'll see how today goes. Um, But as we begin, one of the things that we regularly say within Collective Church is the church is not a place where or an event when, but a people who. And in a moment like this past week, it's worth noting that the church, that uh, you and I, we are a people who receive, practice, and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, We do this as we live dedicated to one another, our neighbors and our city. We receive, practice, and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom as we walk with wisdom regarding the times, as we embody a non-anxious presence, as we pray for our government, our neighbors, and the sick, and as we submit to the government. And so it's out of these convictions, us hoping to be the community that receives, practices, and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, that uh, in submission to the wisdom of the state of California, the city of Los Angeles, that for the remainder of the month of March, we were going to be a people who, first, uh, we're not going to gather for our weekly Sunday services. Um, As many of you know, the fact that you're checking in on this podcast uh, for the month of March, the remainder at least, and then we're going to reassess week by week. Um, But for the remainder of March, uh, we are going to cancel our Sunday gatherings. And so this is coming out of a place of an abundance of caution, participating in this worldwide effort of preventing the spread of the virus. And so it's not that if we gathered on Sunday, everybody would walk away infected. We're not, we're not walking from that kind of place of panic and fear, but simply that that's, it's a possibility and it's just not worth contributing to this problem by insisting that we have gatherings the way that we want. Uh, similarly, out of that, uh, second, uh, for the month of March, uh, we're not going to be having our neighborhood dinners, and this is simply out of respect for those who uh, open their homes and host on a regular basis. We don't want them to feel forced to have to disinfect their house before and after gatherings, and so we're just saying, let's take a break. Uh, this far into the month of March, there was only one more scheduled, and so we're going to reassess as we get into April. Now, out of those two things, though, because the church is not a um, individual person, they just gather, but a people, we still want to work for some sort of gathering. And so that's luckily where we already have our discipleship groups in place. And so as much as you're comfortable doing so, you're not ill and you're taking individual responsibility to follow the basic protocols that everybody's been reposting on social media to avoid unintentional spread of the virus, be connected to your discipleship group. Text one another, FaceTime if somebody's sick, just check in as, as we're not, so many people are not even going into work, but working from home, uh, relationships are just necessary at a time like this. And so please reach out to your discipleship group. Still meet on a regular basis and, and take, again, the necessary precautions, but meet together, study the scriptures, pray with one another. Now, in the midst of all of these things, uh, we will also continue to be a people who continue as responsible, engaged disciples of Jesus. Uh, some of the connections and what, what this means is we're going to continue studying the scriptures, both as individuals and as a community at large. And so uh, whether in the podcast or on the collective website, uh, you can find uh, some of the show notes there to aid you in your study. Normally with a sermon, I kind of just like 
preach. And, and I have all my notes that are just for me. Um, what I'm doing is I've put those all together in one big PDF with uh, pictures and slides and graphics and a bunch of hyperlinks for further study. Uh, I want this little Bible study that we're about to do to be something that really helps you uh, in the coming weeks. So keep an eye out for those show notes. And we're also looking into some streaming options for the next few weeks. So no promises, um, but we're looking into other options. Um, we're, not, we're not limited just to the, the audio thing, although that's what we're doing uh, for this week. And then also, um, as we continue as responsible, engaged disciples of Jesus, I want to encourage you to take this change in, in just life right now and, and the extra time that you may have to put into practice what we've been studying for the past three weeks. David Herman, who's in my discipleship group, he's a part of the collective community. He texted me right when we sent out the email saying that we had canceled our church services. He texted the, the whole discipleship group, all four of us. He said, uh, Ryan, when you started this series, I didn't think you'd cancel our church services for a month so we could truly act on the whole silence and solitude thing. Um, and so, although that wasn't anyone's uh, idea, David David has a good idea going on there. And so, uh, yeah, in the change-up, in the absence of Sunday gatherings, take some time uh, to get alone with God in your own soul, to rest, to renew, and as we'll look at in a moment, to relinquish. And so, if you have the show notes pulled up, um, I have the discipleship guide. Uh, they're linked to for this week's practice of uh, relinquishing prayer. A couple other just added notes, and then we'll get into uh, the text itself. One, consider how you can care for those around you, whether that's doing grocery runs for the elderly or immunosuppressed in your neighborhood, uh, checking up on folks, uh, making sure that your extroverted friends, that they're doing okay with social distancing. Um, If you're looking for other ways, um, just one little thing that that came across earlier uh, today, a couple of collected people had posted about was a website called westsidefriends.com, where you can sign up uh, to just help out with people in the community that are needing help with things. Um, there's other resources like there. That's just one. And then um, if you need help, if, if something happens, you're sick or, or, or you're, you have a weakened immune system, you just need somebody to get groceries or do something for you, please don't re- hesitate to uh, reach out to us. Um, if you don't have the contact information, um, I've put my email in the PDF through the show notes. And so you can grab that and just hit us up. And then finally, one biblical encouragement before we get started today comes from uh, the Apostle James in the book of James, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, where he writes, wash your hands, you sinners. See, it's biblical. Wash your hands. He doesn't say 20 seconds, but it's, it's insinuated in the Greek um, if you read it in the original language, but wash your hands you sinners. Let's get into uh, this week. Um, That's out of my introduction for the next few weeks. Now let's get into Mark. So as many of you know, this is our final week uh, studying Mark's three moments of Jesus getting alone with God and his own soul in prayer. This regular practice of Jesus has gone on to be called the practice of silence and solitude. And so as we looked at last week, when you zoom out and you look at the Gospel of Mark as as a whole book from kind of a 30,000-foot view, you can divide the whole thing into kind of three simple three-act structure uh, with an Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And what's interesting is that when you begin to look at that three-act structure, you see that Mark gives three moments of Jesus getting away for prayer as the transition point between each of the acts. The purpose behind that, I mean, there's a bunch of them. First is this is Mark's creative way of showing what Luke just wrote in Luke 5.16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. 
Uh, Second, it's an example of Jesus leaning into solitary prayer and the transitions between his life. Uh, Mark's teaching us that to follow Jesus is to lean into the practice of silence and solitude like Jesus in the varying stages of life. And similarly, in each of these three times that he gives us uh, a a little moment of Jesus getting away, he's giving us a different element or purpose behind the practice of silence and solitude. And so if you want to Bible nerd out with me, I've got a little chart in the show notes, but for the rest of us, we'll keep going to summarize those three moments of silence and solitude in our series so far. Our first week, we looked at the launch of Jesus's ministry in Galilee, where Jesus went into the Eremos, that is uh, the Greek word for the quiet place, the solitary place, specifically the prayer of renewal, uh, to renew Uh, to get a sense of what God was calling him into in this next season. Last week, after a busy season of ministry with his disciples, Jesus went into the quiet place uh, to rest, to rest after a busy season. And then this week, in our final one, uh, Jesus, in preparation specifically for the cross, uh, for his death and crucifixion, he withdraws to Gethsemane with his disciples, specifically to relinquish, as we'll see. And so this is our final week in Silence and Solitude. Uh, Next week, we're going to actually be jumping back from Mark 14, back all the way to chapter 2 as we continue in our Being with Jesus series. So this series, three weeks, zooming out, looking at a couple big sections of the Gospel of Mark on Silence and Solitude. Next week, we're going to zoom right back in to Mark chapter 2 and see what's going on there with Being with Jesus. What's crazy is we're actually going to come back to Mark 14, what we're about to look at in uh, a little over a year, but that's totally okay because there's so much going on here. But... Without further ado, uh, it's time for us. Let's read Mark 14, verse 32 through 42. I'll read it for us, and then we'll we'll pray as well. We'll pray, and so you can join me in reading. I'll get on the show notes. The text is right there. If you have your Bibles open, uh, read with me, and then why don't we pray together. So Mark 14, where uh, he records, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, and see that my betrayer is at hand. Uh, and so, Father, in the midst of this being a weird uh, thing to be sitting at my dining room table talking to no one, 
just feels weird. So I just pray that right now there may be discipleship groups that are listening to this or people just sitting uh, in their living room or doing the dishes, uh, finding little ways uh, just to reflect on this story in the midst of a kind of chaotic season. God, I just pray that you would invite us into the quiet place. Uh, We ourselves uh, might see ourselves uh, for who we really are and see our great need for you, that you would meet us in the place between trust and fear. So God, I just pray that you would be uh, with everyone uh, that calls Collective Church uh, their home, uh, their family, their community. And uh, God, I just pray that you'd be with our city. Uh, Continue just to guide um, our officials in wisdom. We pray for those uh, that are sick, not only uh, in Los Angeles, but around the world. And just even those that are just living with this like ongoing anxiety in in the midst of fear, um, just taking control. We pray that you'd be with them. God, would you be the God of healing, the God of peace. We pray that you would speak to us today uh, through Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Amen. So as a roadmap uh, for our study today, if you look back over through the text, we're going to kind of divide it into three little steps. Uh, The first is 32 through 34, verse 32 through 34, where uh, we're going to look at the drive, the drive to the garden. What brings or drives Jesus to the quiet place? What brings him here? What drives him? into the quiet place of Gethsemane. And then we're going to look at, in verses 35 through 40, the press of the garden, and and the idea being what is pressed out, that'll make more sense in a moment, or revealed of Jesus and his disciples in Gethsemane. And then finally, the result of the garden in verses 41 through 42. What are the implications or the result of this pressing with Jesus and his disciples as they move closer to his cross? So, the drive, the press, the result. Let's go back to verse 32 and 30 through 34 for the drive. Where it begins with, and they went. And so because we're coming uh, into uh, chapter 14, where we were at chapter 6 uh, last week, what in the world is going on here? Well, Gethsemane, and they went, Jesus and his disciples. Here we have um, one of the central stories of the life of Jesus. Um, when people think of Jesus or imagine the story, the images that come to mind are usually something about the crucifixion, maybe the resurrection, maybe his last supper, maybe uh, the trial. And, and Gethsemane tends to show up, but, but sometimes really does get lost in the plot. Um, where when we think of Jesus, Gethsemane kind of gets, you know, um, scooted by, which is, I mean, an honest shame because Gethsemane, uh, what happens here in this garden, uh, reveals a Jesus who is so unlike the assumptions not only of the day, but also our own assumptions about him today. And so the first is unlike uh, the assumptions of the day with the heroes of the day. If this letter, if this book was maybe being a, a fiction written up in the times of Jesus, but wasn't a true story, well, Uh, It gives us a hero that's very unlike the heroes of that day. You see, for the Romans and the Greeks, they envisioned their heroes in the face of death as being calm and collected. You can uh, read over the account of Socrates and his uh, his execution and his trial, where he throughout the whole thing is calm and composed and collected. Very unlike what we're about to see with Jesus. Similarly, uh, Jewish literature, uh, when the writings of those stories around the time of Jesus, they envision their heroes in death, and they are hot-blooded and fearless. You can read uh, the book of First and Second Maccabees uh, for more accounts of that, where guys go down screaming in anger and violence, but also in a deep trust in you know Yahweh our God, and they're going down with swords swinging. 
we, we find here in the story that we've just written a Jesus that's unlike both of those, don't we? And similarly, this is also the Jesus that we find here in Gethsemane is so unlike how many of us, me included, in, imagine Jesus when we read through the Bible. When we read the Bible, when we read stories of Jesus, it's very easy to imagine what what we could call Terminator Jesus, this like T-800 like robo-Christ who's been sent to save the world from extinction, right? Where he kind of comes down from heaven, come with me if you want to live. And he looks human, um, but he's really quite robotic. He's like emotionless. To quote Terminator 2, I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do. Like this just, you know, feels like how so often we can be prone to think of Jesus, where the disciples are kind of like John Connor. They're like helping him feel cool and act cool and feel emotions for the first time. He's got sunglasses, hasta la vista. Like this is just, we had this vision of Jesus being this kind of robotic, maybe that's an overstatement, but robotic kind of moving through life, you know, belonging in the Hall of Presidents or something like that. Here's the reality. Gethsemane, in the face of all of those different ways of viewing Jesus or just viewing heroes uh, for the Romans and the Greeks and Jewish literature, is so different than the Jesus we find in what we just read because it reveals to us a real and human Jesus who, knowing all that's about to come with his cross, his trial, his death, he has, and I don't put this lightly, a panic attack. He has an outright panic attack. When you look back over just there in verse 33 and 34, like look, there's more emotion packed into like the few words here than Mark has given about Jesus and at various other points. Maybe sometimes a word or two, but here you have greatly distressed and troubled, and his soul is so sorrowful that it could kill him, even to death is what he's saying there. I mean, Jesus is how he, this is not a robo Jesus or a calm and collected or hot blooded and fearless. This is a Jesus who is terrified. Even his self description reveals something of the person of Jesus, though, where uh, when he says, My soul is very sorrowful, he's quoting uh, from Psalm 42. You can go and read it uh, this week, where uh, the psalmist, uh, this song emerges as both self talk and prayer to the God. Uh, that comes in the midst of his time of profound disquiet and fear and need. I mean, Psalm 42, along with Jesus here, as we've seen here and over the past two weeks, goes to a quiet place to get alone with God and with his own soul. And specifically here in Mark 14, like in Psalm 42, it is because of the distress, trouble, and sorrow and fear that he's facing, that's what makes him run to the quiet place. Like this is social distancing before it was a thing. This is like social and spiritual distancing. It is getting away in the midst of anxiety and fear specifically to be with God and his own soul. And I mean, just again, to note the cultural, we go through these same distresses. You and me have this week at a cultural level. There's, there's viruses. It's an election year. There's, there's all of these ambient and acute terrors and anxieties and just a distress that we feel. And, and, and even deeper than that, in a personal level with your work or absence of work, with your, with your health or absence of health, with cancer, with, with family, with your singleness or with your marriage. There are, there are ways that life brings out distress. And Mark here offers his final teaching on, the, on silence and solitude, is that silence and solitude, this practice, is the space that we make for the prayer of relinquishing. 
of trust in the midst of our fear. As Psalm 46.10 puts it, to be still and know that I am God. This word be still in the Hebrew, rafa, it's this Hebrew word to let go, literally to let go. To be still is to let go. To be in solitude and silence, to be in stillness is to let go and know that he is God. And as we're going to see in just a moment, though, that is not a cute, like, let go and let God bumper sticker. It is an all-out wrestle. And that's what leads us into uh, verse 35 through 40 with the press of the garden. And so 35, Jesus, going a little further, falls on the ground of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's the question. Here's the fun Bible nerd, literary ninja thing, just to, just to give away what we're about to do here. <laughs> so that you guys can... Now, this is the nice thing with a podcast. You guys can uh, skip stuff or pause stuff. This is different than a sermon, but uh, stick with me because this is so interesting what Mark does here. Uh, why call it Gethsemane? You know, in Luke, his gospel, he calls it just the Mount of Olives. Uh, John, he just calls it the Garden. And, and so, for some reason, he chooses to call it Gethsemane, but he doesn't choose to call it Aramos, uh, the solitary place, the desolate place, the quiet place, like he's been doing for the past two weeks. So, here's the question. Why Gethsemane? Why not Aramos? What does Gethsemane bring that Aramos doesn't? You know, the quiet, quiet place. But why not the Mount of Olives? Why not the Garden? Two things going on here. On the first level... Mark is telling a biography. He's giving us historical context, geography. This is a real story, right? This is a real place that you can go now. You can still see the olive tree groves. You can. There's a little church set up there now. You can go and see this. There's a historic. There's there's a historical thing going on here. Secondarily, though, Mark is using a particular language and choosing to call it Gethsemane, choosing to talk about what this place is because it brings out a particular emphasis for us, the audience, that would not have been lost for his original audience, but for us, needs a little bit of work. So here we go. The Garden of Gethsemane was at the base of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was called the Mount of Olives because it was the Mount of Olives. There were olive trees growing there. And so what would happen is that they would go and harvest all of these olives, and then they would bring them down to multiple places for them to be pressed, to be pressed into oil. And that's actually where the word Gethsemane comes from. It comes from the Aramaic word for olive or oil press. It's a plot of land at the base of the, where they would harvest oils, where uh, olives, where uh, if you have the show notes, you can see, or my, the little PDF notes, you can see two pictures here where they would bring down all of these olives. And then in this kind of trough, you can see someone pushing this mill in circles. This was a small one. They would be larger ones that would be dragged around by a donkey even to crush even more olives. And so as the olives go in, it gets crushed into this paste. And then that paste gets put into these kind of tire-like things. If you look at the second picture on the right, you can see underneath this big, big, uh, the big rock, you have these little what looks like tires uh, that it's being pushed down onto. They would take the paste and pack it into these little um, fiber tires, stack them on top of one another, put a big rock, and then they would push down with all of these rock weights. And what that would do is the pressure on the paste would then bring out the oil. And they would do this three times, and each of these pressings brought out a different quality of oil. So that first one, that was the highest quality. It was the first fruits, right, that 
Out of that, they would take that to the temple. That would be used by priests for anointing. It would be used for lamps in the temple, but it was all for temple use. It was the first fruits. It was set aside for God. The next pressing would be used for the home, for medicine, for eating, for um, you know using it for lotion and for hair, like whatever you want to use olive oil for in the home, for cleaning things. That's, that's what it was for. They use it in the home. The third pressing was such a low quality oil that oftentimes it was only used for lamps. Uh, even today, um, un- that, that third pressing is uh, unless rendered with heat and chemicals is still largely inedible. And so they would use that for lamps in a pre-electricity time. Now, all that set up, the garden is the pressing place. But here in Mark 14, what's so interesting is it's not olives that are being pressed. It's Jesus and his disciples. Again, Mark and all of the authors of Scripture are literary ninjas. And so both the name of the place, Gethsemane, the pressing place, the oil pressing place, and even, as we read through the story, Mark doing this three times, Jesus going away and coming back. So we're in an oil pressing place, and there's a rhythm and pattern of three parallels to the three presses of the oil pressing. So Jesus and the disciples are here in the pressing place, and they're being pressed by the circumstances of what's going on, and their essence is being drawn out. And so what we find is who Jesus really is, who these disciples really are. I mean, the reality is that who you and me are in our prayer life, when life is really pressing up against us, that's the real unfiltered us. Like, that's the real you. And the you that you don't even know that you are sometimes until you start praying. When when there's no more trying to put on a show and pretend we're not praying, you know, in a church gathering with people around me and so we've got to come across when it's just me and God and life has has, has got me worried or scared. That's the different thing. John Owen, uh, the way that he puts it, who we are on our knees in solitude before God Almighty, that we are and no more. And so here in Mark 14 in the pressing what we find is who is the real unfiltered Jesus, and with him, Peter, James, and John. So let's take those two in turn. Let's first look at the pressing of Jesus. As we read in in Mark 14, verse 36, this one little sentence is not like Jesus just kind of went into the garden and prayed that, you know, three times. This is Mark's summary of around three hours of prayer. And so he's trying to summarize in one sentence what would have been three hours of ongoing wrestling and praying with the Father. And, and honestly, you can summarize those three, sec- the, 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 the prayers of Jesus, these three times going and praying this, this one sentence in verse 36 into three words, uh, trust, fear, and relinquish. Trust, fear, and relinquish. Let's look at trust first. In the pressing of Jesus, we find Jesus who trusts. When he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Uh, one of a child's first words after, you know, mama or ima is uh, Abba, uh, similar to our, our dada or our, our daddy. It is a word of deep, deep intimacy. It had use beyond simply um, what a child would call their daddy as a young, as a little young one. But that was deeply weighed into what the word Abba meant. And so Jesus has a deep intimacy with the God that he reveals as his Abba Father. But it's not just a deep intimacy because even more than that, it's a profound level of authority. Because Jesus, in praying to God with this you know, child speak, as it were, is doing something that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't do. 
In his incredible book, uh, The Prayers of Jesus, Joachim Jeremias, he went through and looked at all of the prayers of Jesus and all of the Gospels and then compared them to all of the written prayers that we have uh, from uh, Jews at the time of Jesus. And let's compare how were most Jews praying before Jesus got there and how was Jesus praying. And what he writes uh, in the end of his chapter uh, entitled Abba is this. Whereas there is not a single instance of God being addressed as Abba in the literature of Jewish prayer, Jesus always addressed him this way. So this is an absolutely novel way to talk to God. The Jesus more or less invents. There was an understanding of, of God as the father of Israel and sometimes being talked to as, as an individual person's father. But language of Abba, this is brand new and Jesus is inventing something. It shows a level of not just intimacy, but authority that he trusts and has a relationship to God, the God that he knows is Abba, unlike anything else. This gets carried over by his disciples. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, and even Jesus, you know, we're invited to join Jesus in calling God Abba. You can read examples of that in Romans 8 and Galatians 4. So the first thing that we find in the pressing of Jesus is trust, a deep trust in God, his Abba, who can do all things. All things are possible for you. But this isn't just a prayer of trust, is it? It's also a prayer of fear. When he prays, remove this cup from me. Now the cup. What's this cup that Jesus is talking about? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures of Jesus' day, what he would have had, the cup was a common metaphor of judgment of God. The word could even be the wrath of God. It's depicted in Psalm 75 and Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, and a bunch of other places as this chalice of, you know, think like a gold chalice with like high alcohol wine. And, you know, when it gets, you know, moved and jostled around, there's something attractive to it. I mean, there's a whole teaching here just on the idea of the cup. But really what it signifies is when God, in his judgment, gives humans what they want. You can read about this in Romans 1. The wrath of God is often depicted as God giving humans what they want. And this, this chalice of wine is something that God not only is something that we want, but something that he makes broken humans drink, down to the dregs, it says. And the thing is, is what humans want, because we naturally run after distrusting, or even unnaturally, I guess you could say, that when because we distrust God, that what we want, when we finally get it, it leaves us drunk and violent and staggering and wandering and sick and in pain and ultimately dead. When humans get what they want, this whole system, has, that, that the love of God is, God is, is so heartbroken that in, in, in order to be just and to give a, a amount of dis- distinction to humans for what they want, that, that, that this cup is offered to them. Jesus understands his mission as going right after that. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that the Son of Man, that's talking about himself, came to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is getting at is that on the cross, what he's going to do is he's going to drink down to the dregs, to use that that, that wonderful (laughs) phrase again, he's going to drink down humanity's violence. He's going to drink down our death, our pain, our hatred and evil, the chaos that we bring on the world. Jesus is going to take the cup from us and drink humanity's humanity's the the, the thing that we think that we want. It's it, but it, it's 
He's going to take it. But what's crazy is that for Jesus, that's not even the worst part. You know, the physical pain, the crucifixion and death. Jesus knows that in drinking the cup, he's not only drinking humanity's death, but he's also taking upon himself the distance from God that humanity's distrust is bred. You can jump ahead just at one chapter from where we are today to Mark 15 and read where Jesus, right before dying on the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This forsakenness of Jesus, this mystery is what Richard Bauckham called the God-forsakenness of God. Where Jesus enters into humanity's status of distrustful and drunk on what we want, but always leads to death. And Jesus knows this is coming, and he's so connected to his Abba and trusting relationship that he's terrified how quickly it's coming. And now here in Gethsemane, he's saying, I don't want it, I'm scared. As Jesus is pressed, we find not only trust, but here we find a fear of what's to come, the cup. He is terrified of his death, his cross, his separation from the Father. So he prays a prayer of trust, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And then fear, remove this cup from me. But the prayer doesn't stop there. He then prays, yet not what I will, but what you will, what you could call the prayer of relinquishing. And what we find in this final third part of the prayer is that Jesus is not a helpless victim of fate decreed upon him, but he's one who's struggling towards God's will. He's working through it for himself. The cross is not imposed on an unwitting victim, but Jesus deliberately faces and soberly shares in this plan as they move towards it. And the place of silence and solitude is where he is able to work through his trust and his fear to come to the place of relinquishing. You see, for us to just learn from the way of Jesus here, the prayer of relinquishing grows from the soil of both trust and fear. Both trust and fear. You see, if we come and we start praying, um, but we are only in fear without trust, what it's going to lead to is, is panic and hysteria and obsession and stockpiling toilet paper. And maybe that's too far, but I don't think so. But, but fear without trust, it leads to a selfish focus on me and my own. And, and honestly, I get disconnected from God as I go down uh, what, what my wife, Erin, uh, what she refers to as a, a panic spiral. It can happen to so many of us where fear begets fear, begets fear, begets fear, begets fear. And by the time we get down to what we're afraid of, we don't know where we began. And that is what happens when fear happens without trust. On the other side, though, there are others that who can live with this kind of trust without fear. Um, at the end of Monty Python's Life of Brian movie, there's this, albeit quite blasphemous, but works uh, for the example here, uh, moment where I, Eric Idle and a handful of the other actors, it, it, they're all being crucified. Um, Jesus is, is one of them. And Eric Idle's character, basically they break into song, whistling this happy tune, always look on the bright side of life. It is, it's, it, there's a link in, in the, on the notes, but um, it is, it's unsettling to watch even though the song is quite catchy. But the thing is, is it's so disconnected from the situation. And that can often happen. A trust without fear, without really being within the world, it just it's, it can't be healthy. And so the whole thing is the prayer of trust plus the prayer of fear. Those two coming together is the space where the prayer of relinquishing happens, the prayer of trusting surrender, of us being able to say, I'm not living out of that fear, but I'm also not ignoring what's coming up and what's going on in the world. And that's where Jesus ends up as we move forward, as we see him pressed out, as he joins in with the Psalms. 
throughout the Psalms over and over, time and time again, are people praying and singing, God, we trust you, but we're afraid, but we trust you. And Jesus is, is in that example here as well. He's doing that as well. So this week, Collective, I encourage you, even right now, if you feel like you need to pause, you can do this just to enter the place of vulnerability, to pray prayers of trust and fear, and on the other side, trust, uh, the prayer of relinquishing. And so Jesus is, is, is pressed. What we just read is him getting pressed, the stones getting pressed down, and, and we find this, the oil, as it were, that comes out is this trust and fear mixing together into this this relinquish this this relinquishing presence that Jesus walks in. So that's how Jesus does. An example for all of us if there ever was one. <laughs> Let's see how the disciples hold up. Uh, the disciples, oh man. So specifically, um, it's Peter, James, and John that Mark focuses on and that Jesus asks to come into kind of like the inner circle of Gethsemane. And why? <laughs> you know, like why not you know, Hank. Why Peter, James, and John? Well, uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels, as you read them, you'll begin to pick up that Peter, James, and John were kind of his his closest friends, the inner circle. Uh, earlier in Mark chapter eight, at the Transfiguration, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain, and uh, the heavens open, and this voice speaks from heaven, it being God, saying, "This is my Son. Listen to him." These guys witnessed it, and so. On one level, Jesus is probably inviting them in because they're close friends and he's going through emotional turmoil. Not only that, but all three of these men, Peter, James, and John, emphatically swore their allegiance to Jesus, even through suffering and death. Um, If you're in Mark 14, you can literally look, Jesus prays in Gethsemane, and you go up to the next paragraph, 26 through 31. And what you find is Peter saying to Jesus, even though all the other disciples fall away, I will not and Jesus tells him, truly, truly, you are going to deny me before the rooster crows twice. You're going to deny me not just once, but three times. And, and Peter goes emphatically, is what Mark says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so emphatically, even if I got to die, Peter's like, I'm standing by your side, Jesus. Uh, James and John, back in Mark uh, chapter 10, uh, 37 through 39, James and John come to Jesus and they go, hey, Grant uh, me and my brother, grant us to sit at your right hand and one of us on your left hand when you go into glory. And Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? There it is, that I drink. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And I just imagine them looking at each other. Oh, we are able, right? And so uh, what, what we're going to find is, uh, no, they aren't and neither will Peter. But Jesus here brings his closest disciples with him. He brings Peter, James, and John with him into the garden to pray like him in preparation for what's to come so that they might remain faithful to God. As he puts it, to not fall into temptation or as it can be translated, the trial or the test. Why why do they need to pray? Why do they need to remain faithful? Why is the test or the trial so scary or worth noticing? Is because, as Jesus puts it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That trusting in God, relinquishing to the spirit of God, is not the human default response in life. And prayer, specifically here in the pressing place, in the quiet place, is where we align the spirit and the flesh. That's where we align our trust and our fear, our trusting of God and our fear of our circumstances. And prayer, those things get aligned. 
And so Jesus invites, hey, if you guys are going to make it through the next few hours and what's about to go down, you guys have to be prayed up. But what do we find? The disciples keep falling asleep. And so Jesus comes out one, two, three times, and he's just bewildered. The enough that he says is just like it's a, it's a head-scratching, like, it is enough. Like, I, it, it's just, it's, I, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, the, the, the thing that he says to Peter, he doesn't even call him Peter anymore, which means the rock. There's a nickname that, that Jesus gave to Peter. He said, you're going to be a rock. I'm going to build you know, my church on you. And here he goes back to calling him Simon. He said, you're not being a rock. He says, die for me. You guys can't even stay awake for me. And so this pressing, as opposed to Jesus, the pressing of the disciples reveal to us that they're not bad, but they're disengaged. You know, it's not that Jesus comes back and, you know, like Moses coming down off the mountain, they're having a giant orgy around a golden calf. That's not what's happening. They're just sleeping. They're lazy and sleepy. You know, on one hand, it's a late hour. They just had a big Passover feast with lots of food and wine. But what we find is that the pressing of Jesus shows us that he's awake to the tension. Jesus is awake to the tension between his trust and fear. Whereas the disciples are literally asleep to the tension between their trust and the fear. And so the question, just to consider as you read through this story, am I awake or asleep to the tension? Am I wrestling like Jesus, or am I passed out and distracted or out of it like the disciples? And it might not be that you're literally asleep, but are you caught up in the chaos of this world so much so that, that you can't even get to the place of trust because you're so stuck in fear? Or are you so disconnected from the world that you're so uh, disconnected that you're in trust but you never have any fear? Are you weighed down from digital distraction or just sleepily moving through life? Like this is, it's a, it's a, worth, it's a question worth asking. Am I asleep or awake to the tension? If I'm asleep, how am I asleep? If I'm awake, how am I awake? Am I wrestling like Jesus? This is a good question to be asking as you read through this. But finally, we got one last thing is where we look at the result of the garden. So what we've seen in the pressing, Jesus, trust in the midst of the tension, disciples, sleep in the midst of it, relinquishing but now we look at the result. So what was revealed in the pressing becomes enacted in the following chapters and the rest of the Gospel of Mark. What was revealed now gets enacted. Jesus, like I just said, Jesus is faithful to the end through trial, through torture, through crucifixion, even all the way to death. Jesus is faithful, faithful, faithful. He faces it not with fear, but with faith. The relinquishing prayer in Gethsemane becomes a source of power where he is so in connection to the will of God that he seems like he's in power even though there's chaos all around him, even as he's being crucified. The disciples, on the other hand, are not faithful but faithless. They fail the test in the trial. They face the the coming chapters not with faith but with fear. They are, uh, well, you could say it is powerless because they were prayerless. They, they have fear. And this fear shows itself in different ways. One is through control. When uh, Judas comes with the mob to take Jesus under arrest, Peter tries to literally take control of the situation by pulling out a sword, and he swings his sword at the high priest's servant. His guy, Malchus is his name. And he cuts off his servant's ear. What's the sign- I was talking to a friend this week about the passage. What's the significance of the ear? I think it's just that Peter can't do anything right. 
<laughs> you know, it's like Captain America. You should have gone for the head with Thanos or whatever. But like Peter can't even like who who's swinging for that? He was swinging for the head. He missed, and he all he got was the ear. And then John's account, uh, Jesus puts the ear back on Malchus because he what? Mark is so disconnected from, or not Mark, sorry, Peter is so disconnected from the will of God that he's swinging swords trying to take control. But Peter and the rest, after control doesn't work, they fear through outright panic. They deny Jesus. Just a couple of verses in verse 50, it says that they all left Jesus and fled. They all left him and fled. Peter would go on, the guy who fell asleep three times, to deny Jesus three times to, of all people, a middle school girl. He's the, you know, brave Peter. I would die for you. He's swinging swords. He gets to the point where a middle school girl, you know, kind of goes, you were with the Jesus guy from Nazareth. Nope, not me. Three times. He does not want to be pinned with Jesus because he's so afraid. James and John, along with the other disciples, like we just saw, all left and fled. They too, they run and hide. Even one of my weirdest favorite stories, uh, they're in verse 51 and 52 on the same page, um, if your Bible's outlined like mine, but it like in the midst of everybody running, uh, one of them runs away, they, somebody tries to grab him, and the guy ends up running away naked in fear and terror. I mean, this is just, in just a few moments, Jesus went from quiet stability, and his disciples there asleep to everybody's run, and Jesus is still standing there being led off to the trial that would then lead to his crucifixion. So what does this mean? Well, Mark 14 here reveals to us that silence and solitude, that, uh, that, that wrestling in the space between our trust and fear, getting quiet enough to name our fears and to remind ourselves of the God that we call Father, that space is far more than just a spiritual practice. But it produces real consequences for how you face life's troubles. Like Peter, you and I, we can become so overcome with fear and without trust that we try to take control. We confuse our will for God's will, and so we take control. We make a mess of things. We start swinging swords. Similarly, like the rest of the disciples, we can also then, if taking control doesn't work, then become overcome with fear. Without trust, we deny Jesus, we walk away from the faith, we run away, or maybe we, we, we follow Jesus, but we're too afraid to name that we are one of his disciples, that we can just be afraid, that we can't trust Jesus, or this world is too dangerous to follow Jesus in. Here's the thing. Over the past week, each of us, have entered into some sort of test. We have found our struggle with fear and trust and the tension place in between that. And like the disciples, you and I both have spun off trying to take control for ourselves or in an outright panic. We've been with the disciples. We've, we've, maybe we haven't swung swords, but we've you know stockpiled on disinfectant. Well, I, I, I don't know what it is for you, but you it's, just, it's, it's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Is each week we, we see ways that we are still needing to be conformed in the image of Jesus. And not even just for those that are Christians. For those of you that maybe you've been checking out Collective and now you're doing this podcast thing with us too, and you still don't identify as a Christian. Like You look over your week... And, and, and you, you've got to admit, there's been times where you may not call yourself a disciple, but you've been acting like these disciples, swinging swords, trying to take control, or maybe not running from Jesus, but just running terrified. The good news at the end of the day for you and for me 
regardless of how we have run in fear this week, how we've tried to take control, is looking back at the story of the disciples. That though they failed their test in Gethsemane on that night, their story would not stay there. James would go on to be martyred or, or killed for his faith, killed by uh, King Herod. Uh, you can read about that in Acts 12. Peter would go on to become a leader in the early church, imprisoned and crucified upside down alongside his wife in Rome for Jesus. John, church history holds, uh, was taken to Rome and thrown into boiling oil, but emerged unhurt, and Rome you know, didn't know what to do with him, and so they exiled him to Patmos, where we got uh, the book of Revelation, the last book, in our Bible. Now, here's the great question. When you compare those stories alongside the story that we just read, what changed? These men were asleep to God's will. They're cutting off ears. They're running naked in terror. And now they seem so committed to and trusting God that these cowards have now become defiant in the face of death itself. Why were they able to face death better than Jesus? This is one of the great questions of history. How? Why? What turned cowardly disciples into courageous martyrs, into visionary church planners where, where the world was taken over by the message of a crucified Messiah, specifically by these cowardly disciples? What turned them into these people of courage? The simplest theory, the answer that Christians have held for 2,000 years, is that their courage... That change happened a few days after what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Jesus' crucifixion, that these people were uh, first-hand eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, as they claimed to have been. And so what ended up happening is after they had come in contact with their king, who now had conquered death, regardless of the depths of their fears, their trust went deeper. They were able to not just look on the bright side of life, but even on the bright side of death. And that bright side is not a delusional optimism like Monty Python, but the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. You can read in history, Roman governors writing to one another, lamenting that they don't know what to do. How do we punish Christians who are not afraid of even death? What do we do with them? See, Jesus became the resurrection. His resurrection was the grounds of like this trust in the midst of fear for all of those disciples back then all the way to now. For the past 2,000 years, we have had Christians who have faced down all sorts of threats and fears and anxieties and terrors. And the resurrection of Jesus has been the thing that has grounded them with trust in the midst of fear. But the resurrection of Jesus, this alone was not the early disciples' source of trust and faith. It was the resurrection as act two of Jesus' crucifixion and death. When, as we just looked at a minute ago, Jesus, as the Son of Man, gave his life as a ransom for many. The way to think about this is that Jesus drank the cup of judgment so that humans, so that you and me, and him being human, the God-man drank the cup of mankind so that mankind could drink the cup that only belonged to Jesus. That's one of covenant promise. On uh, the night uh, before they would go into the garden, uh, just before Jesus foretells Peter's denial, you can look in 22 through 25 um, of chapter 14. Jesus gets together with the disciples for the Passover meal, what we now see and know as 
the Lord's Supper in the way that Jesus repurposed it, where he uh, took bread and he broke it and he said that this is my body. He broke it in front of them. And then he lifted up the cup. Interesting cup. We have two cups showing here in chapter 14. He lifts up this cup. He says that this cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We have the Son of Man who gave his life for many, and we have this blood that's poured out for many. This ransom where Jesus would take on our cup so that we might have this cup of covenant or promise. And what is that covenant or promise? Well, you find examples of it all throughout the story of Scripture. Jeremiah 31 through 33 summarizes it. That's where God said, I will be your people, or I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. In Deuteronomy 3.16, that I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, Jesus took on the cup of the justice and the judgment of everything that humans want that leads to death, that death is what Jesus drank down so that we might have the life and this committed relationship to know God as the Abba who will not leave us or forsake us. Another way to think about this is in a chapter over in Mark 15, verse 34, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is him drinking the cup that we have always wanted. We want God to leave us alone. And Jesus drinks that for us so that we might sing, Abba, Father, you have never left me. In political upheaval, in viruses, in cancer, in job loss, in trauma, in chaos, and all the uncertainty of life, even in the face of certain death, of a culture of hysterics and upheaval, as we wrestle in prayer, in silence and solitude, we are able to say and pray, I trust you, but I'm afraid, but I trust you. And then from that place, of working through that, even if it takes, like for Jesus, three hours, we then move into our lives as a non-anxious presence grounded in the resurrection while we drink deep from the cup of the covenant, this promise that we belong to the God that we now know as Abba through what Jesus has done as the ransom. And so here's the thing. As you meet in your discipleship groups this week, we, as the pastors of our church, we want to encourage you to take communion to gather together with some bread that's been broken, with a cup that has been filled, or maybe individual <laughs> clean cups, uh, and to observe uh, communion of the Lord's Supper together, to uh, lift up those elements, to even pray as you hold them. God, we trust you. Even in our fears, we trust you. Your son's broken body is a testament of your love, and his resurrected body reminds us of your promise. And so in the midst of our fear, we can trust you. And so I'm going to end just by reading Romans 8, 31 through 39, as written by Eugene Peterson for his message translation. And then uh, I just invite you, um, just take some time in silence and to begin to reflect on this, maybe journal, uh, maybe schedule time to meet with your discipleship group this coming week. But we'll end here. If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, Embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son. Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? 
the one who died for us, and more than that, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment interceding for us. Do you think anything is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. No virus, no election cycle, no economic downturn, no sickness, no cancer, not even death. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Amen.